This is Franciscan Voice, finding God's voice among us. Hello and a warm welcome to our listeners who are joining us. It's good to have you. My name is Friar Tim, speaking to you from St. Bonaventure Parish in Toronto. And today I am conducting an interview entitled Behind the Quill, where I interview with the gospel author. And today I have with me Mark the Evangelist, although I know he's a very humble man, so we'll just keep it at Mark. And he's going to be uh, talking to us a little bit about his gospel. So Mark, it's good to have you. And uh, a good place to start is just uh, introduction. So who are you? Thanks, Friar Tim. It's good to be with you and with you all. Um, my name is Mark. And who am I? Only God and I know. I'm the guy who wrote the gospel according to Mark. And I'm probably the guy whose name was Mark in the Acts of the Apostles who knew St. Paul, the guy who wrote so many of the letters in your New Testament. I had a cousin who was also a friend of Paul. My cousin's name was Barnabas, and he introduced me to Paul. And I once went with the two of them on one of their preaching missions, but I, I got cold feet and I had second thoughts. So I turned around and went home, and Paul was furious with me. My cousin had to calm him down before Paul would let me go on another trip with him. If you read through some of Paul's letters, you'll find out that Paul could be pretty touchy sometimes. I'm a second-generation Christian. Like you, I never met Jesus. And like you, others told me about Jesus, and it was through them that I became a believer. Bible students today, they try to figure out whether I was a Jew or a pagan Gentile before I became a Christian. They can't decide, and I'm not telling. Thank you, Mark. So tell us about your book and where the inspiration began, because there's so much to it, and I'm sure our listeners are, are very eager to uncover the mystery here. You know, I was the first one to write down the story of Jesus. Matthew, Luke, and Mark, John, they wrote later. My book is the shortest of the four Gospels. And I don't want to blow my horn, but in a sense, it's the most important. Maybe the most important book ever written. Matthew and Luke thought so much of my book, they figured that I had done such a good job with it, that they copied large parts of my gospel right into their gospels. Ninety percent of my gospel appears in Matthew's gospel, often word for word, and you know, the guy never even gave me a footnote. A question about what inspired me to write is a very good one because knowing why I wrote will help you understand my gospel better. By the time I put quill to parchment, almost every one of the 12 apostles had died. They were the ones who first told the story of Jesus when they preached, and after they died, I didn't want the story to get lost, so I wrote it down. That's one of the reasons that I composed my gospel. And another reason is this. When I did write, things were very difficult for Christian believers. The Roman Empire, old Nero, the one who fiddled while Rome burned, he was busy persecuting us. Our faith and our hope needed encouragement. So I wrote my gospel and I emphasized that Jesus is human. He suffered just like us and he is also divine and has power because he is God. You know, my point was, we're not alone. Jesus, God made human, is with us. Now, I know there's been a lot of confusion as to when your book was written, so are you able to clarify a bit 
when you wrote it? Once again, only God and me know the date for sure. But those who study the Bible think that I wrote my gospel sometime between the year 64 A.D. and 70 A.D. Why? Again, two reasons. Because 64 A.D. is the date that Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. With their passing, I figured I'd better get down to work. Also in 70 A.D., the great temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And some people assume that this was the beginning of the end of the world and Jesus would come any minute. Well, he didn't. Christians were getting worried, so I figured I needed to give them some encouragement. I do have a question about who the audience is. Who did you write it for? I wrote especially for Christians in the city of Rome who came from a pagan background. And you can tell by reading my gospel that I was writing for ex-pagans because when I mention Jewish words or Jewish customs in my gospel, I make it a point to explain them. Like when I use the word Golgotha, a Hebrew word for the place where Jesus was crucified, I put in parentheses the Greek translation of that word, which is the place of the skull. Did you feel you were prepared to take on this task of writing the story? These are great questions, Brother Tim. Thanks very much. Uh, and I have to say, I felt very prepared. Remember, I learned a, a lot right from the horse's mouth. I knew Paul, and I heard him preach often. I was with Paul on his trip to Jerusalem, and I got to meet the other apostles too. One of your ancient Christian authors even says that I got a lot of my material for my gospel from Peter himself. Steeped in the community of believers, I felt more than prepared to tell the story. Why is it that you did not begin your gospel with a genealogy of Jesus as in Matthew's gospel? Did it have to do with the audience you were writing for? In one sense, yes, it did. Because ex-pagans who I was writing for weren't too interested in Jesus' Jewish family tree. But there was another reason why I didn't give the family tree the genealogy of Jesus when I told my story. Because the kernel of the story of Jesus is his death and his resurrection. And it was from that point of view that I kind of worked backwards and told the story of his words and his works that led up to that high point of his death and his rising. That's what people were interested in knowing. It was only later when the Jesus story had been well publicized by people like Matthew and Luke in their Gospels, it was then that people began to ask, you know, tell us something about Jesus' early life. Where was he born? Who were his ancestors? And that's part of the reason why Matthew and Mark did write down genealogies at the beginning of their Gospels. Now, Mark, I noticed that this comes up a lot in your gospel, and, and I wanted to ask, what is the importance of revealing Jesus as Messiah in your story? Well, the answer to that one has to do with one of the reasons I wrote my gospel. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means someone who delivers, someone who saves. And the corresponding word in the Greek language of my readers is Christos. You know that as Christ. You know, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title acknowledging him as the Deliverer and the Savior. Keep in mind, I was writing to a community that was suffering persecution. I wanted them to be able to hold on to their faith, so I stress Jesus' role as Messiah, as Christ, as Deliverer, as Savior. An important point, though, is that I present Jesus as the Messiah Christ who suffered, died, and rose. He delivers his people from death 
because he himself trampled down death by his death and was delivered from death by the Lord God in rising. So we're starting to get a bit of an understanding of Jesus in your gospel. And and I want to ask that we know in Luke's gospel that he portrays Jesus as the friend of the poor, the compassionate savior. In Matthew, it's the great teacher. So what picture of Jesus do you give us in your gospel? Let me give you a long sentence. I highlight Jesus as the Messiah, Christ, who is the Son of God, sent by the Father to be the servant of all, the one who suffered, died, and rose. How's that for a mouthful? Let me break it down a bit. The first line of my gospel says it's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Soon after that line, I tell the story of Jesus' baptism, and God the Father confirms what I wrote by saying from heaven, you are my son. In the 10th chapter of my gospel, Jesus himself says, I have come to serve. And on three different occasions in my gospel, the Lord Jesus predicts his suffering and death. So you might sum it up by saying that my picture of Jesus is the picture of a suffering servant son. Are you starting to see the connection between that picture and who I was writing for? I present Jesus as the Son of God, but I tend to stress his humanity so my readers could identify with him. My gospel, more than any other, openly shows the very strong human emotions that Jesus experienced. For instance, his his kindness for the leper. I mention the anger that he felt at people's stubbornness and the indescribable sadness he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm very excited to hear about how you structured your books. So could you tell us what that structure means or what it's pointing to? First, my gospel is the only one of the four that calls itself a gospel. And in the culture of the time, a gospel was a public announcement of some important event, the proclamation of some good news, The town crier would announce the gospel, the good news of the birth of a prince or the marriage of a princess. The gospel is the announcement of the Jesus story, the good news. And it's important to realize that my gospel is not a biography of Jesus. None of the gospels are. It's not a strictly chronological work, day after day after day. It's a document that was born of faith. I arranged the words and the works of Jesus in such a way that people could apply them to their own situations and have their faith strengthened. And Matthew, Luke, and John did the same thing. As far as structure goes, my gospel has an introduction, two main parts, and an epilogue. The introduction is simple, but contains everything that follows. It reads like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There you have it. God made human. From there, different students of the Bible outline my gospel in different ways. I prefer to keep it very simple. There's part one and there's part two. Part one goes from chapter one through chapter eight, and I call that the gospel of power because in that section, I show Jesus has power over nature. Remember how he calmed the sea and walked on the water? I show that Jesus has power over human hurt He cured the woman with the hemorrhage and the man with the withered hand. Jesus has power over evil. He casts out demons. 
And Jesus also had power over his opponents, those who were out to get him. When they criticize Jesus for neglecting to wash his hands before eating, he puts them in their place and he says, you guys, you neglect the very law of God and you're worried about my table manners? Another time, Jesus' opponents looked down their noses at him for eating with tax collectors and people they said were sinners. Again, Jesus puts them in their place. I did not come to call the righteous, Jesus said, and how self-righteous those opponents were. I came to call sinners, the Lord insisted. They're the ones who need me. And when you hear Jesus turn the tables on his opponents like that, you want to jump at it and say, Way to go, Jesus! We're on your side. In chapter 8, Jesus asks his followers who they think he is. Peter speaks up and says, You are the Messiah. And that's a critical turning point in my gospel. Being with Jesus had led Peter to the point of faith, and he believes in Jesus as the divine deliverer, the sacred Savior. Now, from there, I get into part two of my gospel, and I call that the gospel of power in suffering. Jesus began to speak of his suffering, death, and resurrection. He throws the changers of money out of the temple, and the leaders of the people begin to plot his execution. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man's son who was murdered by evil people, and his opponents are now, no, they know what he's talking about. They say, hey, he's talking about us here. We don't like it. He's saying we're evil. They're not pleased, and they bring their plot to kill Jesus forward. Then Jesus warns his disciples that they will be persecuted, and they were, and they still are today. He breaks bread, the bread of his body, which will be broken on the cross. And in Gethsemane, Jesus experiences the depths of human agony. And the unkindest cut of all, one of his friends kisses Jesus and hands him over. A kangaroo court condemns him, Peter denies him, Pilate sentences him, and the soldiers ridicule him. So now wait a minute. You're describing this as power and suffering? Yes, that's exactly what it was and what it is. Because Jesus remained true to his mission, to his Father and to himself. Jesus is the suffering servant Son of God. In the power of the Spirit, he stood up to his opponents. He stood up before the court and before Pilate in silence, not dignifying their lies and false accusations by responding to them. Out of love, he dared to enter the human experience of suffering and death. That was dignity. That was power. That was the way to deliverance and salvation for us. On the third day, a group of women went to the tomb. It was empty. A heavenly messenger reminded them of what Jesus had said at the Last Supper. That night he told them, I will rise and I will meet you in Galilee. And the messenger tells the women to go and repeats those exact words to the disciples. He was risen. His power prevailed through suffering and through death. Take all of that and remember who I was writing for, a suffering people who needed their faith in the power of God to be strengthened. you portray Jesus as such a heroic figure, but at the same time, he's presented as the suffering servant, which you just said. So which is it, or is it both? Without a doubt, it's both. In the gospel of power, I present the Son of God made human 
exercising power over nature, over human suffering, over evil, and over opposition. In the gospel of power in suffering, the suffering servant son, Jesus, enters the mystery of human suffering and he conquers it by dying and rising to life again. I'm going to address the elephant in the room now. So could you explain to our listeners what is going on in this epilogue we're confronted with in your book? Why is it important? Well, the second part of chapter 16 of my gospel was added on after I had completed the book. I didn't even write it. So when I saw it, it looked like an elephant in the room to me, too. Students of the Bible realize that I didn't write it. They call it the epilogue, by the way because it's just not my style of writing. It doesn't match with the rest of the gospel. It's completely different from all the other chapters. It's like when a teacher can tell that a student didn't actually write an essay that she turned in because it just doesn't sound like her work. What was going on was down the road, once my gospel was out, believers, well, didn't really find my ending too, we'd say they thought it was anticlimactic. The last words were, he is not here, he has been raised, he'll meet you in Galilee. They didn't feel that those words were strong enough to emphasize what had just happened. Part of the apostles' preaching told stories of their being with Jesus after he rose. Later readers of my gospel thought it might be a good idea to spell that out, so someone added a few of those stories about Jesus after his resurrection. In that added epilogue in chapter 16, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, then to two disciples who were walking along a road. Those were the same two disciples that Luke stole from me on the road to Emmaus story in his gospel. Finally, Jesus appears to the 11 faithful apostles, charges them to proclaim the gospel. There's that word again. And Jesus ascends, and the apostles begin to preach. And the use of the word gospel in this epilogue is actually an echo of the word gospel in the beginning of the book, remember? the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and now at the end, go into the world and proclaim the whole gospel. So even though I didn't write that line, I like it because it brings the book full circle and provides two bookends between which Jesus, the good news, does his work. So you've gone over the structure of your gospel and how you portray Jesus, but could we get an eagle-eye view of your gospel? Just a, a quick overview. Okay, here goes. Part one, with Jesus' baptism, the conquest of Satan in the desert, miracles and transfiguration, that all seems to be moving toward a great success. Part two, with his mounting opposition to Jesus, disciples who are regularly getting it wrong, predictions of suffering, crucifixion, oh, it seems to be headed towards a dismal failure. The last chapter and the epilogue bring the two to resolution. Jesus, the suffering servant, prevails over all, even death. And for those who hold fast to faith, Jesus, God made human, is the good news of deliverance and salvation. Something that I'd really like to go over are some of the special features in your gospel. So what should we look for when reading or hearing your gospel? I think first, try to notice how the events in my gospel just keep on coming fast and furious, one after another, after another, after another. There's a sense of dynamism 
movement, urgency about my gospel. Your modern translations leave out a very important word that occurs untold times in my gospel. The word in English means, and then. My gospel speeds along at a lightning pace, eager to communicate Jesus the good news, the deliverer, the savior to people in need. The translation from one story to the next often begins with the phrase, and then. And then Jesus said, and then Jesus did, and then Jesus went. It's like a little child telling her mother about her day. Well, we, we went to grandma's, and, and then we, we, we went to Tim Hortons, and then we went to the party, and then we saw a deer, and then, and then, and then, and then. There's a kind of breathless excitement embedded in the structure of my gospel. My gospel is also very vivid. It tells a good story in graphic detail. It paints word pictures, often with very rugged prose. There's a story of the possessed man who gashes himself with rocks, howls at night, and breaks free from his chains. Another story describes a boy being freed from his illness, experiencing convulsions and foaming at the mouth. My descriptions of the mockery and the scourging of Jesus are much more vivid than those in the other Gospels. Besides being an author, I think I was a pretty good teacher. There is a proverb that says repetition is the mother of all learning. Well, I repeat a lot to make my points. I repeat the word gospel several times. I repeat the idea of numerous predictions by Jesus of his suffering and death. Not once, not twice, but three times. I was a good author, though. And I wove my repetitions into my gospel so subtly that they don't sound like repetitions, but they do make their points. Then there's also what people today who study the Bible call my sandwich technique. I start telling a story, I break off, I get into another story, and then I return to the original story. So I sandwich another story in between the beginning and the end of an original story. As you read, or as you hear, see if you can find any sandwiches like that. Another very important feature of the gospel is the big secret. When Jesus cast out demons, he would not let them tell other people who he was. When he raised the little girl to life, he told people not to let anyone know what he did. After he was transfigured, Jesus said to the disciples, don't tell anybody about this until I have been raised from the dead. Why? Because he didn't want to be known as a wonder worker. Of course he cured and calmed storms and multiplied loaves, but those were only preludes. They were the opening notes of the full symphony he had come to sing. He is the Messiah, the one who delivers, the one who saves. He is the one who brings us to God and God to us. That's who he wanted to be known as because that is who he was. I wonder then if you would give us an example of this sandwich technique. Yeah. Let me try one. In chapter 1, the heavens are torn open when Jesus is baptized. In chapter 15, the curtain of the Holy of Holies in the temple is torn open. I include those details in my gospel to show that Jesus came to open the way between us and God. And everything Jesus did and said between those two tearings was sandwiched in between the first opening of the heavens and that opening of the curtain in the temple, they were the ways in which Jesus was doing the work of opening the way, bringing us to God and God to us. 
What steps might we be able to take in order to view the world through this gospel lens that you present us? This one's simple. Read my gospel. Sit down and read it. You only hear brief passages when the gospel is proclaimed. So sit down and read it right from chapter 1 through chapter 16. You can do it in one or two sittings. Pay attention to the footnotes you have in your Bibles because they provide you with great background. Before you try to see what this all means for you today, you need to understand what it meant when I wrote it. And use your technology. If a footnote refers you to another Bible passage, Google it. You'll be amazed when you see the way the Bible all fits together. And look for some of the things that I talked about. My graphic style, the way I repeat things, the sandwiches where one story is sandwiched between another. Grab a quill. Check off the passages that appeal to you. Underline right in the margins. It's your Bible. Make it your own. My grandfather used to have a favorite saying, so what? (laughs) So I'm going to ask you the same question. So what? How can your book help us? I like your grandfather, Friar Tim, and I like the question. How can my book help you? So what? Well, tell me, Friar Tim, and anybody who's listening, did you ever feel afraid? Me too, and everyone else too. Jesus experienced fear. His disciples did also. And I make it a point several times in my gospel to remember Jesus' calming fears. The fears of his disciples during storms. The fear of Jairus, whose daughter had died. The fear and trembling of the woman who touched Jesus' cloak to be healed. My readers then, and you, my readers now, experience fear. Jesus understands he is human. And Jesus is powerful. He is God. The Lord wants to calm our fearful hearts. And how about following Jesus? Are you a disciple, Friar Tim? Me too. And all of us are. Most of the times we get it right, but sometimes we get it wrong. And the picture I paint of the disciples in my gospel captures that realism. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, and then turns around and says to Jesus, oh, no, no, that's not the plan. You're not going to suffer. James and John listen to Jesus, the person they're following, as he talks about his upcoming sufferings. Yet all they want to know is, hey, Jesus, please, can we sit next to you, one on each side, when you come into the kingdom? At the crucifixion of Jesus, there's not one disciple to be found. They all turned away. And the consoling point in all of this is that Jesus kept calling them. He kept teaching them. He kept forming them. He kept loving them. He sent them out to spread the word. He trusted them. And he trusts us. We are disciples. Never perfect, always trying. Disciples called by the love of God and loved when we are succeeding and when we are stumbling. And then there's perseverance. Anybody out there ever said, enough, I'm done, I'm throwing in the towel? Me too. Everybody else too. And Jesus didn't pull any punches when it came to the difficulties of being his disciple. At one point in my gospel, he says, everyone will hate you because of me. The way of discipleship is the way of Jesus. We will 
experience opposition from the outside, but also from the inside. Our fears, our stubbornness, our insecurities, they get in the way. Jesus acknowledges that, and he encourages us by saying in my gospel, you who persevere will be saved. He encourages us to persevere even more by persevering himself through his trials, his death, and his being saved himself in resurrection. And finally, Jesus himself. He's the point. He himself is the gospel, the good news. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his friends, he tells us, I will go before you. At the end of my gospel, the messenger in the tomb tells the women, Jesus goes before you. There is hope. Wherever we go through life, Jesus always goes before us. When we arrive at a certain crossroad of our life, Jesus is already there. Jesus goes before us to lead us, behind us to support us. Jesus is above us to light the way, below us to smooth the road. Jesus is beside us to accompany us. Jesus is within us to strengthen, console, and encourage us. That was the good news when I wrote my gospel. That is the good news when you read or hear my gospel today. That is the good news that never grows old. Whenever you dip into the gospel, the Holy Spirit will make the good news new again for you. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Behind the Quill. This has been an, an excellent witness, and it continues to teach us something. And I just want to say that, you know, the good news is so accessible to us today through technology. So hopefully this has been a good invitation to take a pause throughout the day and, and to pick up Mark's gospel. So maybe you can pull Luke's leg and get him in here for an interview as well. We also want to tell our listeners that um, posted regularly on our website at stbonaventure.ca will be a series called Musings with Mark. So if you want to dive closer into his readings, that's for you, and I encourage you to check it out. So let's end with a prayer from Mark's Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny self, take up a cross, and follow me. Good and loving Father, we thank you for the courageous witnesses of your church, and we ask that you strengthen us to be courageous witnesses also, that we may spread your love to the four corners of the world as your apostles once did. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen. St. Mark, pray for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our website to discover other episodes at franciscanvoice.org.